0: to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And he says, and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for, yours is, for your reward is great in heaven so that they, or so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, pastor and author John Piper once wrote, meekness begins when we put our trust in God And then because we trust Him, we commit our way to Him. We roll onto Him our anxieties, our frustrations, our plans, our relationships, our jobs, our health. And then we wait patiently for the Lord. We trust in His timing and His power and His grace to work things out the best way for us, I mean, for His glory and for our good. Um, I just want to be happy, says the husband, to the counselor who um, is attempting to rationalize his decision to leave his wife after fifteen years and leave behind three children, I just want you to be happy, says the parent to the adult child who decided to move in with her boyfriend as this parent you know struggles to reconcile in, in her heart you know the tension between the, the love for their child but also their child abandoning the values. Of, of Christ for postmodern cultural values. I'm not happy anymore, and I'll never be happy again, says the man or woman who's battling debilitating depression, who's contemplating ending it all with a handful of pills. If I would just make more money, I would be happy, we have heard. If only I could get a new car, I would be happy, many have said, if I could just get her to notice me, I would be happy. When I'm finally able to settle the score, I'll be happy. When she gets you know, what she deserves, I'll be happy. When my child graduates college, I'll be happy. When people stop making fun of me, I'll be happy. We've all heard and said these kinds of things before. And as we talked about last week, we just all want to be happy. right? We all want to experience happiness. We love that feeling in our hearts, even if it's only for a moment. We love that happiness that comes from the certain times in our lives. Right? We all want it. We all desire it. We crave it. We pursue it. In fact, some, as we talked about, people, some people pursue happiness like, like happiness junkies right sometimes sometimes things happen and we feel happy and we enjoy the moment and then we have the crash on the other side and we come down from that happiness high right and then we're off then hunting the next happiness fix and many people will turn to just about anything to feel happy whether it's money or power or hobbies or relationships or sex or work or careers or possessions some find it in politics and gossiping. Some find it in alcohol and drugs. And, and some of them even find it in, in, in their own children's lives and the, and the lives of, and their accomplishments. We all want happiness. And most people will do just about anything to get it. Because as we talked about last week, happiness, the happiness that we can find in the things of this world doesn't last. It's only temporary. That's why so many people need a fix, because no matter what the source of happiness is, it doesn't last. In fact, there was a story that I read about a young lady. Well, I say young lady. She's middle 30s now. But she was born with a congenitive defect that caused her, her lower jaw to be abnormally large, and it continued to grow as she was a teenager. Right? And she couldn't have a surgery on it until she finally grew up, where she stopped growing, where she could get it fixed. And she dreamed of that time when I could finally get that surgery and I'd finally be beautiful and I finally would be happy. And one day she actually got the surgery and she was very happy. She was very, very happy for a while. But then the happiness wore off. And then she said, I realized that long-term happiness was actually about something else. And she said it took took her over 10 years to get to the place where she could truly understand where permanent happiness comes from. And that happiness was not found in what the world has to offer. It wasn't in surgery. It wasn't in her getting married. It wasn't in her celebrity status. It wasn't her job. None of these things created the long-term happiness that she craved. Now understand, these things did make her happy, right? Repeatedly, and they still do. Her husband still makes her very happy, right? But they're not the source of long-term, permanent happiness. That kind of happiness that we all are looking for is only found in one place she came to terms with. And that's in a relationship with God. It only comes from the things of God. In fact, Jesus promises that kind of happiness to those who follow him. Right, And Jesus calls this kind of happiness makarios. Makarios which gets translated as happy or fortunate or being in an enviable position or being well off. And what it does is it carries with it this deep sense of satisfaction, especially as it relates to the things of God. Makarios is not simply temporary happiness. It is a life-changing happiness. It is a happiness that comes not from the world, but from God. It's something that doesn't come from outside there, but it comes from in here by the Spirit of God. In fact, the way that this word makarios gets translated most of the time in the Bible is a word blessed. Makarios means supremely blessed. It means to be blessed by God himself. And Jesus tells his disciples, and he tells us that we can be deeply happy. We can be supremely blessed. But this blessing is not found in money regardless of what the gospel what the uh, prosperity gospel teachers will tell you right it's not found in power it's not found in stuff it's not found in our hobbies or sports it's not found in our work it's not found in anything else in this world this kind of happiness this kind of blessedness is only found in the things of heaven in fact Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 he says blessed Right? Deeply happy are the poor in spirit. Blessed in an enviable position are those who mourn. Blessed well off are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed, see this, blessed, supremely happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you and false you know against you falsely on my account, Jesus says. And then he says, Rejoice and be glad. Now I know that this is a perplexing list of things that Jesus says that will bring blessing to us because it seems like the opposite of the stuff that I naturally look for in my own life to make me happy. I mean, the world tells me blessed are the proud in spirit. Blessed are those who laugh and smile and party. Blessed are those who are bold. Blessed are the assertive. Blessed are the ones who stand up for themselves. Blessed are those who are full and who are satisfied. Blessed are the self-righteous. Blessed are those who vanquish their enemies. Blessed are those who divide and conquer. Blessed are you when nobody's persecuting you. Blessed are you when everybody likes you. That's what the world says. And that's what my instincts tell me. But that's not what Jesus tells us that brings this long-term happiness and blessedness. He said blessedness and true happiness lies in things like being poor in spirit. And mourning and being meek and being persecuted. How's that possible? Well, that is exactly what this series is all about. And in this series, we're asking the question, what does it actually mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be truly happy? What does it mean to live a life that carries with it a supreme state of being blessed that Jesus is talking about? And we're talking about how is it possible to have this deep state of happiness? How do we live in it where we're persecuted and being meek and mourning and being poor in spirit? In this series, we're looking at why are these the characteristics of a blessed life? And we're looking and examining what's the outcome of that kind of life. And last week, we spent some time you know, setting up this conversation and talking about the context of this passage and this entire series. And what we discovered is that our text is in the book of Matthew, and the book of Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience from the first century. And because of that, it has a distinct Jewish flavor. And what that means for us is we need to examine what is being said, not from 21st American culture, but from, from first century Jewish perspective. And with that in mind, we need to understand that Matthew's purpose for this gospel, he was declaring for the world that Christ is the Messiah, right? He declares that Jesus is the the one that was anticipated, the heroic person that they were waiting for to come into the world and become the reigning king. He lets us know that Jesus is the reigning king, and not just of Israel, but the entire world and his kingdom has already come to earth. It just wasn't the kingdom that the Jews were looking for in the first century. It's actually not the kingdom of earth. It's the kingdom of heaven. And so because of that, the idea, the theology of the kingdom of heaven and living in the kingdom of heaven on earth is an important concept to this entire book, especially for our text. And what we discovered in this is this section that we're studying is called the Beatitudes. And in this section... This isn't just some standalone set of pithy statements or proverbs that Jesus is quoting, but there's actually, these are the, the introduction to a bigger, larger conversation called the Sermon on the Mount, which is in chapter 5, verse 1, all the way to chapter 7, verse 29. And in this one, and this is just one of the most important parts of the entire New Testament, this Sermon on the Mount. This isn't just Jesus making some special statements about life. He's talking about what life is to be like for his followers in the kingdom of heaven, not just for the future, but here and now today. And in this sermon, he covers everything from being blessed to divorce, to charitable giving, to to anxiety, to how we treat other people, to judging other people, to the golden rule. And in this sermon, Jesus describes how a believer in God's kingdom is expected to live not just in the future, but now, today. And so this beginning of chapter 5, or the Beatitudes that we're looking at, that's the introduction to every bit of that. This text that we're looking at is the beginning of Jesus telling his followers, this is how you're supposed to live. This is how you're supposed to conduct yourself in the kingdom of heaven. This is what true happiness is. All right? In the kingdom of heaven, this is what it means to be blessed here on earth. And he says, that, and he makes the point that the blessing is not about money. It's not about power. It's not about external things. He said blessedness, true happiness, is from having the right heart's attitude towards God. It's about having the right perspective and the right attitude towards God. In fact, last week we looked at the first two blessed statements you know, found in verses 3 and 4 as proof of that idea. In fact, uh, those two verses, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And, 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 and what we come to understand by examining this text in its context, Jesus is saying that blessed is the one who understands that he is spiritually broke and bankrupt. Blessed is the one who understands he is completely and totally dependent upon God. Because that person will be rewarded with the kingdom of heaven, not because he has done anything to deserve the kingdom of heaven, but because God by his grace gives it to him as a gift. And Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn or, they, or they're sorrowful over their sin with a godly sorrow. Blessed are those who hate their sin because that sorrow leads to repentance. And they're blessed because they're comforted and they're comforted with a gift of forgiveness. They're comforted with the knowledge that all of their sins, past, present and future, are forgiven in Christ Jesus. And so we start off this series understanding that those who follow Christ are truly blessed because in spite of their inability to make themselves right with God, they're granted the kingdom of heaven. And in spite of their inability to keep themselves from sinning, they're comforted with the knowledge of their forgiveness of all of those sins. And that right there, just that little bit, just those Beatitudes, just these by themselves are enough to be happy about forever. Those who trust in Christ are forgiven and and they are given the kingdom of heaven, right? That right there is a lot to be happy for just by itself. But the list goes on and continues. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now, as we talked about last week, this entire section of chapter 5 is one of the most misunderstood and one of the most misquoted sections of the Bible because it really is easy to take this text out of its context, right, and twist the meaning. And many people do that. Many people will use verse 3 which says blessed are the poor in spirit to justify their hatred of rich people, right? There are people who will use verse 4 and says blessed are those who mourn as justification for to live a joyless and somber Christian life. And it's the same thing for verse 5. It said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This text has a specific historical and cultural and theological context to it. And if we don't take the time to look at that, we're going to miss what Jesus has to say here, which many people do. In fact, many people look at this text and they think what Jesus is saying is being a Christian is all about being beat down. All right? That that's how that's how they define the idea of being meek, that being a Christian is all about being a doormat for other people, that being a Christian is never about having having to take a stand, that being a Christian is about cowering down and quivering and being afraid and and being subservient to everyone else. There are people who will use this text and combine it with the verse that they find later on in the sermon, which says, judge not that you not be judged in order to paint a picture of a Christian life where you have to simply endure and just shut your mouth and be quiet, that you can never have a controversial thought or never speak a controversial word, that you never have to, that you never can take a stand or push back. It's a picture of a Christian who is too weak and too inept to do anything except to weep and wait for God. But that is simply not the picture that Jesus is painting here. That is not what he's talking about. Jesus has something altogether different in mind. And we understand what Jesus is saying. If we're going to understand it, if we are actually going to wrap our heads around what Jesus is saying in this little short verse, then we have to understand the context here. And we have to ask three basic questions. Question number one is, what does Jesus mean by meek? I mean, what does Jesus mean by that word? Not what we think in our culture, in our world right now, what they think about that word. What did Jesus mean when he said it to the audience that he said it to? Number two, why would God bless someone who is meek, right? How does meekness lead to this deep state of happiness? And number three, what does it mean to inherit the earth? That's a really weird kind of saying, right? In our culture, it doesn't seem to make quite as much sense. So what's Jesus saying here? And let me just tell you, if we don't answer those questions, if we don't answer these three questions here in the context that Jesus spoke these words, then we're likely to misunderstand everything that Jesus has to say. So let's just do that. Let's, let's answer this question, every one of these questions in context. First question would be, what did Jesus mean by meek? What does he mean When he says meek, well, he actually didn't use the English word meek because he didn't speak English. Right? He spoke Greek. Right? And that word that he used there is this Greek word right here, is pronounced "prouse." And what "prouse" means is mild, and it means gentle. But "prouse" is never translated as weak or inept. Okay? It is mild or gentle. The word carries with it a sense of restraint. Not a sense of inability, but restraint. In fact, Warren Wearsby in his commentary notes that, that meek or prous was used by the Greeks to describe a horse that had been broken. It refers to power under control. It gives off this idea that a person or a thing has power, but that power is regulated, it is controlled, it is harnessed, it is restrained. And so when a person is meek, it doesn't mean that he or she is weak or frail. It means that they are purposefully restraining themselves. It means that they're choosing to control the power that they have. I think a good example of, of what that means, a practical example, would be my son Carson. He's a big kid, right? I mean, he's, he's a big kid. He's big. He's strong. He's like 12 years old, almost five foot eight, 200 pounds, right? And he can run but he's a big teddy bear, right? He doesn't like conflict, right? He doesn't bully people. He doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want to get into a scrape, right? He's really tenderhearted. In fact, if his mom just says the wrong word to him, he'll he'll tear up like right now. You can say that Carson is meek, but he's not weak, right? He's not powerless. All you have to do is just watch him put on his football gear and watch him tackle somebody, right? Raiden knows all about that, huh? Yeah. Yeah, Carson actually... He loves that contact. I mean, he really loves that full body, you know what I mean? Wrap him up, drive him to the ground, right? And then when he gets a chance to run the football, it doesn't matter how big the kid is, he loves to run people over. He loves that physical part of that. He's a very powerful kid for his age, right? right? He can handle himself, but he's also a nice kid. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. He's powerful, and he restrains himself, Right? He could be a bully, but he's not because he restrains himself. He's a picture of what it means to be meek, right? Meekness is a decision to be mild. It's a decision to be gentle, even when you have the power not to be. In fact, Jesus was very meek, right? Jesus, God in the flesh, he had the power to create, he had the power to heal. He had the power over, over nature itself, even while he was on the earth. And yet he restrained the exercise of that power. When he was arrested, he could have put a stop to it, like right now. But he didn't. In fact, we see in, in John's account, when he was arrested, we see this at work. John chapter 18 says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that, that, that would happen to him, um, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now I want you to think about what's happening here, okay? Okay. It's really easy to miss the significance of this. Jesus is in the garden, and this band of soldiers shows up with some officers from the temple with Judas tagging along. And this band of soldiers is not a small gathering of guys. Okay, The word band actually is translated from the Greek word that means cohort. And a cohort of soldiers was anywhere between 200 and 600 soldiers. Now, I don't know exactly how many soldiers were there, but there was a lot of people there, and they were ready to fight. They were armed with weapons. Right. So this was not a small group. This is a big group of people. Right. And when and when they showed up, Jesus demanded, who are you looking for? Right. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And when he said those words, it says that they drew back and they fell to the ground. This entire group of men at Jesus saying, I am he. They stepped backwards and fell down on their faces is what the word means. I mean, the literal word-for-word translation for how the Greek works itself out is they drew towards the back and then fell to the ground prostrate. prostrate. Okay? The idea is that they that's being communicated here that there was something about, about Jesus saying, I am he that caused them to stumble backwards and then fall face down physically on the ground. The entire group, the entire cohort of soldiers Jesus, by his word, can make this cohort of soldiers fall face down on the ground. He could have stopped his arrest at any time he wanted to. He had the power to put an end to it. But he restrained himself and he allowed himself to be arrested and taken to the cross. Jesus is the greatest example of what meekness is. This power under control. And so meekness is not a picture of this weak, spineless Christian who cowers under threat. Right? It's the picture of someone who willingly restrains himself and exercises his or her power under extreme control to the glory of God. Right? That's what Jesus is communicating here. Blessed are you when you were powerful and when you restrain the use of that power. Blessed are you when, when you have the ability to be assertive, to be defensive, to be aggressive, but you, but you restrain that ability. That's what Jesus is communicating here. Blessed are you when you have the ability to fight back, but you don't. Now, the question that naturally follows is, how is that a blessing? How does that make a person supremely happy? How does this this restraining one's own power, especially in the face of harsh treatment, how does this put put me in an enviable position before others? Well, to understand that, we need to understand the context of where this particular phrase comes from. You see, Jesus didn't just make this little pithy statement up there on the spot. right? Jesus actually was quoting Scripture. He was quoting the Old Testament. He was quoting specifically Psalm 3711, where David wrote, The meek shall inherit the land. Right? You see, what you have to understand is there's a reason why Jesus used this phrase, that he was quoting this part of Psalms. He just didn't pick a phrase or or a proverb or a scripture just to make his point. He had a reason for that. He was talking to first century Jews. And all of these people were intimately aware of Old Testament scripture. He was talking to people who memorized and knew by heart the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And so when he quoted this text, they knew exactly the context that he was saying. They knew exactly what what the the behind-the-scenes information was. Right? And this was important because, because of the time of, of what was happening in history. See, when Jesus came to the world, Israel was no longer a sovereign nation. Right? They were conquered. They were conquered and, and, and they were ruled at that time by the Romans who were particularly fearsome. The Israelites longed for the day that they would have a new king and they would, they would, they would come and, and he would run off the Roman army and they would be free from foreign rule again. Because as it was, it was, this was tough. They were exploited economically. They were exploited politically. They were exploited physically. Right? The Romans persecuted these people. Right? And times were hard. People were starving to death. Jews had, had a difficult time. Right? And so many of these Jews would resist and they would fight back and they would create rebellions. And the Romans would, would drop the hammer on these people. Right they would they, they would they would crucify them by by the dozens right and they would destroy homes and cities in fact in, in seventy a d thirty five years approximately after the resurrection of Christ, the Romans finally had enough, and they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and took it all the way to the ground, just as Jesus said they would and so this was really an intense point in history because people were fed up. They were frustrated, they were irritated, they were encouraged by others to exact retribution and to resist and to demonstrate and to fight back all the time. And here Jesus is in the middle of all of this. He is quoting from Psalm 37:11, and he says, "Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land." What? Now think about this statement for a second, right? this seems out of place to, to us right but it certainly was out of place for the jews because because they wanted to be free they wanted a rebellion they wanted the messiah to come who would conquer this roman army and jesus says the meek the restrained ones those who control their power those are the ones that inherit the land not the ones who go out and fight not the ones who assert their rights not the ones who are willing to push back you know and 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 keep struggling right Those who choose to be mild and gentle will inherit the land. And this stood in stark contrast with the the whole attitude of these people and their understanding of how they were going to get their country back. This is not what they wanted to hear, right? Especially in the context of the Psalms, because they knew exactly where Jesus was coming from. You see, to understand this statement that Jesus is making, you have to understand the context of this verse of Psalm 37. You have to understand what Psalm 37 is about. Because Psalm 37 begins with this statement. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. See, this psalm is about having peace in the time of trouble. This psalm is about being blessed and even happy when you're facing incredibly harsh and hateful people. The psalm is about finding true happiness when all the world around you and what it has to offer you is against you. William MacDonald in his commentary notes that David had suffered plenty at the hands of ungodly and unscrupulous men but during his lifetime. He says, but now as an old man, he shares some advice on how to react when we become a victim Of wicked schemes and venomous tongues. This psalm is all about how to live as a meek follower of God in a hostile world. How to live as one with restraint and self-control. When the whole world is calling for your retaliation and for your reaction. And David opens up this psalm with. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Or in other words, do not allow yourself to be consumed with people who do wrong. Don't allow yourself to be eaten up by by people doing evil. Don't let your life be defined by the lawbreakers and the wrongdoers around you. Don't get caught up in trying to settle scores. Don't try to take matters in your own hand is what's really the gist of this text. Because that's what we do, right? When we're wronged, we want to assert ourselves and flex our muscle. Right when 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 we, we, we want to push back when somebody steps on our toes we want to return the favor like when someone cuts you off in traffic right you just want to honk the horn and give them the one finger salute right be honest right sometimes you might even get behind them a little bit and tailgate them a long ways and like flash your lights at them right right drive all aggressive like right I mean we've all been there okay I mean I'm if you've not been there then you don't drive or you're lying so one or the other right. When someone wrongs me, I want them to know about it, right? I want to speak up. I want to assert my rights. I want to demonstrate my power. But God says, fret not yourselves because of the evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Now, as hard as that is for us to swallow, right? Believe me, this this, this audience, this is not what they wanted to hear, okay? They wanted Jesus to say something like, hey, eye for an eye, brother, all right? They wanted Jesus to say, hey, when someone does you wrong, then you do them wrong seven times back, right? But that's not where Jesus points them. Jesus points them to this text, the Old Testament, something they can't even argue with. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. And then David continues and says, for they they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. God says, don't fret over evil people and don't allow yourself to be consumed with those who do wrong because their time is coming, right? They will get what that's coming to them. So don't get worked up, right? But instead, instead of trying to get even, instead of trying to to aggressively push back, instead of trying to do that, right? David gives a list of instructions what to do instead of that. And he says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desire of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. And forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. And those who wait for the Lord. Shall inherit the land. In just a little while. The wicked will be no more. Though you will look carefully at his place. He will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land. And delight themselves. In abundant peace. You see what. Jesus is pointing to what he's, what he's saying to these first century Jews was this. You asserting yourself, this, this rebelling, this creating havoc is counterproductive. It's counterproductive to you. It's counterproductive to the kingdom of God. Right? You fighting for your rights as Jews isn't the place where you're going to find the lasting happiness and peace that you're looking for. You not, you, you're not going to find happiness exercising your power to try to get what you want out of your own life. You're not going to be blessed by, by trying to bully somebody in, <clears throat> in return for being bullied. You're going to find happiness. You're going to find joy. You're going to find blessedness by restraining that power and by trusting in the Lord. In fact, David says to us, he says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Trust in the Lord. Give it to the Lord and do good. Trust that God is in control and depend on that. And then not only that, But instead of taking your shots at people who hurt you, instead of trying to settle scores, instead of trying to assert your your rights, do good. Do good to others. And I know this seems ridiculous, right? I'm like, what? But in this very same sermon, Jesus says, love your enemies. (laughs) Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. David says, trust in the Lord and do good, even to those who don't deserve it. And only that, he says, delight yourself in the Lord. Don't delight yourself in your freedom. Don't delight yourself in your possessions. Don't delight yourself in your status. Don't delight yourself in the idea that you're going to walk into their office and give them a piece of your mind. right? Don't delight yourself in you putting them into their place. Delight yourself in God. Make Him the focus of your life and your happiness. Make Him the central point of your joy. Delight in Him. And then it says that He will give you the desire of your heart. Now, that does not mean God's going to give you all the money and the power and possessions and relationships that you desire. That is not what he's saying here. It's not what he's talking about. I don't care what the prosperity gospels teach. That's not what it says. He says, delight yourself in God. Make him the center of your life. Well, how do you do that? How do you delight yourself in God? Well, you make God your greatest desire. That's how you delight yourself in God. You make Him your treasure. You make intimacy with God the thing that you desire the most. You make being close to God, right, so close that you can feel His presence in your life, your greatest desire. And then David says, if you delight in God that way, He'll give you just that. He will give you that intimacy. He'll give you that peace. He will give you the joy that comes from being close to Him. He will give you a happiness that cannot be taken by the world. And so David says, trust in the Lord, delight in the Lord. And he says, commit your ways to the Lord. Now, let me just bottom line this and help you understand what he's saying here. What he's saying is commit everything to God. Commit every thought, commit every worry, commit every grievance, commit every hurt, commit every wrongdoing, commit all of that to God. And then it says, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as noonday. God says if you will commit your life and all of the issues of your life to him and trust in him, he will work it out. He will make it right. He will exonerate you. Right? He will bring forth your righteousness as, as light, is what he says. And I've actually seen this happen in my own life, this, this promise fulfilled. Several years ago... <clears throat> We had something really difficult happen to me and my family. It was, it was just downright awful. And some of you probably remember that time period. And, and, I, and I had to, at that time, I had to do something that, that, that was the right thing to do. right? But it was difficult because it came at personal cost to me, great personal cost to me and my family. And for a long time, there were people that looked down on me. And there were people that talked bad about me behind my back. And there were several people who just outright hated me because of what I had to do. I wanted so badly to just react. I wanted so badly to fight back. I wanted so badly to go to Facebook and put it all out there for the world to see and explain my side. I wanted so badly to confront people face-to-face for the way that they were treating me. But I didn't because I knew that that was not going to bring me the peace I was looking for. I knew that the only way to get the peace I was looking for was to commit it to God and trust that he was going to work it out. To commit my way to the Lord. To commit how I responded to the situation to him. And so I trusted him to work things out. And he did. It took time. But he exonerated me. And people who once hated me turned, and who turned their backs on me were people now that I have close relationships with again. God restored me and restored my name with these people. What was impossible became possible with God. And believe me, if I would have walked in my own strength and did what I thought I should be doing, <laughs> I would have made it a whole lot worse. Still today, there would be people that would, that those, there would be those that hated me, and there would still be grievances, and there would still be grudges, and there would still be a lot of unforgiveness because of that. So David says, trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. And then he says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not over The one who prospers in his way over the man who carries out evil devices. Meekness is about God. And one way to walk in meekness is to trust in God enough and to wait on him enough to be patient. Even when it seems like those who are doing wrong are prospering. Even when those people who are doing you dirty are getting away with it. Right? We need to trust God enough to wait on him to work things out in his timing. And then David gets to the heart of the matter and he says, and he gets really practical here, by the way. He says, refrain from anger. (laughs) There's the hard one, right? And forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. I'm going to be transparent and let you know this is really where I personally struggle because when I feel like I'm being wronged, when I feel I'm being pushed around or taken advantage of, or when I'm disrespected, I can get angry. Right? And then anger turns to wrath pretty quickly. I mean, I can feel that rage kind of well up in me at times. right? But the Bible is telling us to refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Right? To give up on worrying. Give up on ruminating and allowing it to spin around in your head over and over and over again. Because those things are not going to bring you the satisfaction that you're seeking. They will not bring you the peace that you need. They will not give you joy. Though in the moment, lashing out might feel like it. They will give you the exact opposite. They will bring only evil. That's why we're encouraged to wait patiently and trust in God. And to delight in Him and to commit every part of our life to Him. And then God promises, For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Those who wait for God are the ones who are going to receive the promise. Those who wait for God, not those who try to walk in their own strength. Those who wait for God are the ones who are blessed. And then he says, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at at his place, he will not be there. And then David summarizes all of this and he drives it all home and says in this one little compact statement, but the meek shall inherit the land. And delight themselves in abundant peace. What is David saying here? What he's saying is this. For those who live their lives focused on God. Those who delight in God. Trusting in God. Committing their whole life to God. Waiting patiently for God. Those people are the ones who inherit the land. Those are the ones that receive the promise. Not those who need to assert their rights to be happy. Not those who need to settle a score to have peace. Not those who want to exact uh, um, retribution in order to experience joy. Those who are meek. Those who are self-restrained because they're depending upon God. Those are the ones who will inherit the land. And that's the context right there. Every bit of that, all of that psalm is the context of jesus's statement blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth because jesus is saying blessed are those happy are those in an enviable position are those who are self-restrained right who don't exercise their power to get their own way because they trust in god they delight in god and they commit their life to god and they wait patiently for god to make things right. They are the ones that are blessed. And the reason why they are blessed, the reason why they're so happy is because they will inherit the earth. Now, some prosperity gospel preachers will jump on this and say, see, if you were meek and trust in God, one day he's going to give you the earth, which means all the material blessings you ever wanted. Okay? God will give you the material blessings of the earth because the earth is material. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. The word that gets translated as earth here in this text is the exact same word found in the Greek copy of the Old Testament, which is translated into the Psalm 3711 as the land. The Greek word here can mean either earth or land. So which is it? Well, the context of the culture tells us all we need to know. See, the context of the Old Testament and the Psalms is around the promise, by the, the, the promise that God had given the Jews. And that is the promised land. The promised land is what David is talking about. He says those who are meek, those who are self-restrained, those are the ones that inherit the promised land. Well, why is the promised land so important to the Jews in their lives, and their theology? Well, it's because it's the promised land that the Jews would finally understand what it means to be satisfied, what it means to live in peace, what it means to live in harmony. It was the promised land that they would find their shalom, or their rest, or their peace. The promised land was the land flowing with milk and honey. The promised land was where people lived and thrived. The promised land was where they experienced joy, and where they they experienced the promise that the land represents. And this promised land that now exists in Israel actually represents a greater hope and a greater promise for those who trust in Christ. Because the promised land represents the promise of heaven itself. The promise that one day we will truly live at peace. The promise that one day that we will live without fear. The promise that we will, there will be no more evil or pain or persecution or tears, right? Or nobody cutting you off on the freeway anymore. That's what Jesus is referring to. That's what he's talking about here. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who trust in God, who delight in God, who wait patiently for God, right? Instead of exercising their own power and authority, trying to get their own way to find happiness. Blessed are those who are meek because they will inherit the promised land. They will know truly what it means to live at peace. They will know and experience the joy of God's eternal, glorious presence in heaven And one day they will inherit the restored earth at the resurrection when everything will be made perfect again. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about Christians, right? He isn't talking about Christians being weak or unable to stand up. He's saying that those who are willing to set aside their power, who are willing to restrain themselves for God's sake and for God's glory, those are the ones who are truly blessed. As John Piper says, meekness begins begins when we put our trust in God. Then because we trust him, we commit our ways to him. We roll onto him our anxieties, our frustrations, our plans, our relationships, our jobs, our health. And when we... Wait patiently for the Lord, right? We trust in His timing and His power and His grace to work things out in the best way for His glory and for our good. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Now you might think, well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can live that one out. I mean, I get the whole, you know, I need to understand that I'm spiritually bankrupt and I understand that, you know, that that, uh, that I'm poor in spirit before God, right? And I totally understand that I need to mourn for my sin and I need to hate my sin. I get that, right? I can do that. But this whole being meek thing, restraining myself when someone offends me, not asserting myself when someone does me wrong, and I don't know if I can handle that. Right? I don't know if I can do that. Well, I understand how you feel completely. But let me give you three things to think about as we wrap up. Number one, when you exercise meekness, it glorifies God. Because when you're allowing God to be in control, right, you're allowing God to be in control of something that you want to be in control of. You're allowing God to handle something that you want to handle yourself. You're transferring your dependence on yourself to God. It glorifies God. God. Right? And it gives God the opportunity to glorify Himself by working things out in His perfect timing as He does. Right? So, number one, exercising meekness brings glory to God, which, by the way, is the, Christian, the Christian's duty. Number two, when you exercise meekness, you demonstrate without question where your real hope is. <clears throat> you see, when you take matters into your own hands, and you use the power that you have to settle scores on your own, you demonstrate that you believe that your happiness and your joy is here and now in temporal things. But when you turn away from your own power in an effort to honor God by trusting Him and delighting in Him and waiting on Him, you demonstrate that your hope is not in the things of this world, but in God Himself. Your meekness demonstrates where your hope is. And number three, you should be meek because Jesus was meek. In the garden, Jesus could have asserted his power and walked away from that party of people trying to arrest him. He could have asserted his power before the Sanhedrin and made them look like fools and walked out of there exonerated. He could have asserted his power before Pilate and snapped his fingers and crushed the Roman army. He could have asserted his power as they began to beat him with rods and cat of nine tails. He could have asserted his power when they nailed him to the cross. He could have asserted his power while he was on the cross. Because he could have called on a legion of angels to come rescue him and say to the father, Father, I'm sorry, but they're just not worth this. He could have done that and more. He could have asserted that power at any time. He was God in the flesh, but he didn't. He was meek. Power under control. He was meek so that you could be forgiven, so that you could have the kingdom of heaven, so that you could inherit the earth. Be meek because your Lord and Savior was meek. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for scriptures like this. Scriptures that when I really understand them, they cut me to the quick. They bring conviction to my heart. They, they, they penetrate my heart because I see in myself a desire not to be meek. I see a desire in myself to throw my weight around. I see a desire in myself to be loud. I see a desire in myself to push back at every turn. I see a desire in my own life to rebel. But you're calling me to be weak. You're calling me to depend on you to to solve my problems, not me. You're calling on me to trust you. And Lord, I pray that that's what I do. I pray that all of us would take this text to heart, that these Beatitudes would not just be words that we memorize, but attitudes we'd adopt and they would change us and shape us into the image of your son. Let me be meek because Jesus was meek, that he suffered for a greater cause. Allow me, Lord God, to walk similar. Allow all of us to take that to heart. And I pray, Father, that today that you would pierce all of our hearts. And if anybody here does not know you, Lord, that you'd put a conviction in their heart that they would desire to know you right now, Lord, and put their trust in you. And I pray for the rest of us who are here, Lord, that you'd rise up a people in this place who would walk out of here meekly, power under control, sharing the hope and the healing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our community and our world. We love you and we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.